0: I'm with Dewan Stanford, president of Fluid Hive. Welcome to the show, Dewan.
1: Hello, thank you for having me.
0: Of course. So excited to talk facilitation with you. And for starters, one of the things I love hearing from guests on the show is how they got their start, because you know, there's not really any college out there that you can go take a facilitation degree. <laughs> and so most people find themselves in this work through many different channels and there's always an interesting story and so I'd, I'd love to hear how you found your way into this amazing work. Well I'm a designer and
1: my path into design started many many years ago with some professional training in photography and that led to looking at layout and then studying color and then studying graphic design and as I Progressed in that career, I had a legal career for a while, and um, I realized that I I stayed late to design the closing binders for the client because the normal design was Times New Roman centered, and you put some things in bold and underline them. Like, oh, no, we, we could do something better than that. And uh, after spending a couple hours designing closing binder covers, I got a look from one of the partners. Like, you maybe you're not one of us. I'm like maybe I'm not. So I found out like no, I'm I'm not one of you. And as I started doing more and more work, I was looking at more and more moments where it was designed together, creating together, bringing groups of people together to understand how they need to work, how they are working, how they understand the context where they're working. And so I began to Take a very close look at my role in those moments, those conversations, and how to be very intentional about constructing them. Because it's a it's a precious thing when you have a handful of people in a room or or more focusing their attention on one endeavor, and uh, to be offered that gift is something that I want to take seriously and treat carefully.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. <laughs> I love this notion that. It wasn't that long ago when we started to have a plural form of priority. Mm-hmm. And I think focus is the same way, right? And so, this this notion that, hey, we can have more than one focus or more than one priority is a very modern thinking. And I think it's a disservice to us. And um, facilitation techniques can help us get back to that, like, and get everyone kind of aligned and thinking in the same way so that we can actually make some real progress
1: yeah, making those choices ahead of time and those trade-offs. I often look at the situations where where I'm leading a group through something and kind of start to think about all the different people involved because often the person who's sponsoring so has asked me to come in and help isn't necessarily going to participate. Sometimes they do. So you have the sponsor, you have participants. Um, and then there's often someone that the sponsor is reporting to, which may be one or more organizations or maybe someone in their chain and starting to think about how all of these people have expectations and needs. Uh, and there may be people downstream f- from the event or facilitated moment that need to do something with what was created. So how to think about what gets um, built and passed on and how that is captured and packaged is, is also a piece of it.
0: You know, I I love this. That's your design background coming into the the center, right? It's like, how do we uh, make sure to design in a way that considers and accommodates all these various people, right? Because they're all going to come from different perspectives, different roles, different needs, and how do we design for them? And so often, people will be asking
1: for a an event or a workshop or a a moment, and I'll hear a lot about the thing. Uh, And we want people to do this and we have this much time and this, this, and well, what problem are you trying to solve? Mm. Let's, let's talk about sort of the, the thing that individually or organizationally you are hoping to accomplish. How will the world be different? How will your world be different when we're done? Then we can start talking about like, all right, well, what kind of thing actually solves that problem? And maybe it's a four hour thing instead of a two hour thing. Maybe it's a two hour thing instead of a four hour thing. Maybe it's something that we need to come back to over a series of weeks. But one of the first conversations I often have is number one, listening to how people are framing up the problem they think they're trying to solve because people don't like to hear that they're wrong about that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So it's, I listen and then I say, okay, how do you know? Because what I want to know is like, okay, here's the problem you think you're trying to solve. What evidence do you have about that? And sometimes they are like, oh, well, this is what's happened in the past. Here's what's led to this. Here's how we decided that this would contribute to this trajectory. And they're like, oh, okay, I can kind of take that. As given, but often I'll hear like, Oh, well, we had some space in the schedule and we were hoping to, then I want to dig for a meaningful problem for, for both them and the participants, for the sponsor and the participants so that I don't come and do something. And then afterwards people are, like, Hey, wait a minute. That wasn't, that wasn't a great experience for us. You didn't do a very good job. Like, Oh, cause I, like, I helped you solve a problem you didn't really have. So mm-hmm. that's a, a key first step in the conversation for me.
0: Absolutely. You mentioned, how do you know? Uh, another question that I uh, I think is similar to that is how will we know? And it's the, how will we know if we were successful? <laughs> and, and did we actually hit, get the outcome we were seeking? And if we're not clear on the outcome, we can't even articulate that ahead of time. So, you know, how do we design in some of these assessment points so that we can tell if we did a good job or not? Sort of following on the
1: pretty much on the heels of the what problem are we trying to solve conversation um beginning to map out uh, high-level options on an experience and suggesting okay here's where we might end up with this path and suggesting a couple of different paths so that the sponsor can start to have the conversation about like okay does this look like a win for you <laughs> Mm -hmm. Um, You know, we're heading toward, we can achieve this, this, and this, in this amount of time. And with this level of resourcing, is that going to be worth it? Is that going to be a a worthwhile use of both time and money and energy? And uh, having those conversations explicitly on the front end makes things so much easier. Because once you have clear objectives once you have a clear idea of the, the the problem that you're trying to solve with the experience, then uh, you can say, OK, I can get into design mode with what's happening you know, from minute to minute without having to sort of guess and hope and you know, like show up on a day physically or virtually and say, like, I hope this works out as opposed to like, oh, I'm fairly confident that this is going to work, barring the usual emergencies that we encounter uh, during facilitation.
0: Yeah. The thing that was kind of coming to mind for me as I was listening is this kind of scenario that you're creating where you're allowing them to peer into the future. Let's consider that this is the outcome that we're at and they can, they can kind of sit with it. Cause you're right. So many people get so fixated on the thing that they need to go do especially if something becomes really hip and really, I don't know, there's really trendy, right? Like for a while, it seemed like everybody was doing hackathons and mm-hmm. I think some people still do them. But when you think to yourself, I need to have a hackathon <laughs> and your thoughts are so focused on the what, and you're not actually peering into well, what, what's that going to generate for us? What's that going to, what kind of new opportunity or new position does that put us in? And I like the, the framing that you were sharing around, because we talk a lot about purpose and outcomes, but the way you were describing, it was really about setting up this kind of like vision into like this future scenario where it's like, Oh, this is the way the world will be if we do this. And how does that make you feel? Or what does that open? What does that create for you?
1: Yeah. And it's helping the sponsor articulate what is uniquely possible with this group of people in this moment. And how can we, um, start to approach making that happen because it's you say, like, oh, insert hackathon here. Well, no. What is the the thing that we need and this group of people needs from this moment?
0: Also, earlier um, you were talking about what I translate it to be buyer versus user. At least that's the language we would use in the startup world, the software world. In in the facilitation world, I guess we would say sponsor or stakeholder and participant, right? And coming back to that design background you have, I think it's really fascinating to think about, you know, if we're not considering both in our outcomes and in how we structure the flow of the day or the flow of the, the event, then we could potentially design something that's at a disservice or, or is not properly tuned for one versus the other. And often I think the sponsor is the one. Or the buyer is the one that gets a lot of the attention.
1: Yeah, the sponsor gets a lot of the the attention because they're kind of in the room when you're designing, but the participants have to have a not only have a good experience, but you have to understand what's in it for them so that they're going to bring the energy. They're going to um, be open uh, to the, the flow of experience. They're going to be open to doing hard work at an intense pace. Mm-hmm. Um, because the, the pacing of the events that I build is, is really, really tight. It's flexible, but tight. And we can, we can talk about the mechanics of that, but it's mapping out who all of the people are. Um, and you could say stakeholder or, or user or customer, but all the people. And, and that includes sponsor, participant, any people upstream who will be using what you produce. Sometimes it's the, also the people who are served by the people in the room. Um, who will be perhaps the ultimate beneficiary of some of the ideas that are put together in the room. And it's saying, okay, with all of these people, then you can start to map out, okay, here's what this person needs out of the situation. Here's oh, the participants kind of need these things. And uh, you can also start to think about all the different relationships to the work. Um, because in sometimes part of the responsibility of the facilitator is to Deepen relationships between participants, or to help amplify ways people have connected in in the past to do a particular bit of work.
0: I love this notion of you know thinking about relationships, or and the, you know the interconnectedness of the group or the lack thereof, and how that in, impacts the work to be done, or how the work that is done is impacted those future impacting the future states of those relationships. I think that way of thinking, almost like, you know, it's a micro social network and you're applying some almost network theory to it a bit and thinking about how you mend relationships or how you lean on existing ones. I think that's a really powerful design tool or lens to apply. And I I like that way of thinking about it. I really thought about it from that perspective before.
1: I owe many debts of gratitude to different designers. And uh, design researchers in particular, Indy Young, she really talks about the difference between the problem space and the solution space. And people like to race into the solution space without doing the hard work to understand the people and how people are making decisions and why people are behaving the way they behave. And... uh, If part of the work is getting into behavior change, uh, it's even more wanting to understand the people before you start setting up, uh, what happens in the room or what happens, what happens online. And especially her work around, uh, around listening and, uh, how to listen well. I've, I've taken that both into the the sponsor conversations, but also into, into the room when I'm thinking about, um, how to bring the, the deep listening that helps everyone really be fully present in the space.
0: It's amazing how much presence and deep listening could just have vast impacts across all meetings. And I often love to ask folks, you know, if you could change one thing about any meeting, what would it be? And I think that might be, it's hard for me to choose because we think about and work in the space so much. It's like <laughs> how, oh man, there's so many issues, but what's, but i tell you, that's so prevalent. This attendees just spending majority of the meeting thinking about what they're going to say next and a lot of it's just because they don't want to sound dumb or you know they want to say something impressive in front of leadership but I think there's a real missed opportunity to not worry about those things and create safety for people just to speak however they speak and let the ideas flow and so I guess I'm curious like that, that brings me to that thinking around the, you know these moments and meetings that could be so much better what kind of things start to surface for you as you think about things that could be, that people could just do in their everyday meetings?
1: Oh my gosh, here comes the avalanche. <laughs> well, it's, it's starting off before the meeting. What problem are you trying to solve? Yeah. Like w- What is it that can only be done by bringing this group of people together and being clear about that before uh, people get in the room or on, or on zoom or wherever. And then it's, being conscious you know, like giving people space to think. and uh, one of the things that i I do in most of the most of the events that i I create and and sometimes in meetings is give people a moment to write down what they're thinking. Mm. And it's just a a few minutes, sometimes ten minutes, depending on the the length and depth of what we're what we're working on. But then you give everyone a chance to get their thoughts down. That says a couple things. You have people who are reluctant to speak and that's because of power in the room, because of personality, because of relationships, because of trust, because of a whole bunch of things. So you have reluctance to speak. Then you have people who are just need a moment to to get a handle on sort of all right like what, what do I think about this what do I what I really think and the other thing that you get when you do that writing uh, especially in longer events is you're able to capture some of those individual thoughts to process later uh, after the event so you're you're setting up what happens after depending on how you structure what's captured so that's that's one thing just having make sure there's enough space for people to think and then there's time and being disciplined about time saying, okay, when we have this list of things, and this isn't necessarily an agenda, um, but it's saying what's most important for us to get accomplished and then allocating your time across those most important things. That way you can say, all right, we're confident that we're going to get these most important things done. And these couple other things, maybe we can take care of those offline or in, in a different way. So those are are a couple of things. The the other thing, and this is perhaps harder in can be harder in meetings depending on depending on who you are, but it's just looking at the energy of the people who are in the room mm. and helping people come into the space well. And sometimes that's like taking a moment so everyone can check in with each other. And those couple of minutes to, to reset and be human can help people attend to the business at hand faster and better. And I've noticed it when I've I've given people those like a little bit of a buffer and a chance to be human. It just made what follows uh, really, really nice. And that's one of the one of the advantages if you're meeting remotely and every everyone's remote, um, you can put people into one on one conversations for a couple minutes. Because often you have the meeting dynamics of like, oh, like people come in and they sit by who they sit by and they say hello to say they say hello. But, you know, people get patterns. They have people that they're closer to uh, and people that they know better. And you have the opportunity to force some of that mixing and build some of that team cohesiveness through those conversations uh, just with a couple flicks of a of a switch in your your favorite uh, meeting software.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. It brings up two things we spoke about in the, the pre show chat, and the first is anytime we're we're thinking about design, space becomes a, a very critical element, and you know whether we're talking about negative space or, or what have you. And I think in the virtual world, the tools we use can impact the space that we provide for our attendees and for people who are experiencing the design that we've laid out for the meeting and the session. And um, one of the things you mentioned was there's just too much um, blame being pointed at the tools themselves.
1: Yeah. Taking your in-person meeting practices and not changing anything and there's dumping them into like everyone's in front of a laptop, everyone's in front of a camera, probably not going to work so well. And there's a decent chance that the meetings weren't so great to begin with. And now you're expecting that to work better in a different context where you have different kinds of feedback, different kinds of interactions. I've been watching the um sort of emergency online education conversations play out. Um and there are lots of people who are saying, see, this whole online education thing doesn't work. It's like, well, when when people have three days to take an entire university online, I don't know. You might want to cut them some slack on that because what can you do? But people are starting to see other deeper examples of of designed online education where you have the instructional design team working with faculty. And these are conversations we're we're having a lot where I teach at uh, Georgetown in the master's in learning design and technology. And we're doing all of our education right now. Remotely uh, via Zoom and and thinking through, okay, how does learning happen there? What's kind of uniquely possible? I like those words with that medium. And how can we capture those moments? It's not a replacement. It's like, oh, it's going to be just like things that happen face to face. Like, no, it's different, but also good. And how do we get to that different, but also good place?
0: That's amazing. You know, so much of the work we do is about kind of accelerating innovation. And so people can get it in their heads that it's about moving quickly. And just because we we're accelerating action doesn't mean that it means that everything we have to do must be fast. <laughs> and <laughs> in fact, a lot of it is, is about taking the time It requires to design things carefully. But what we, what we don't want is analysis paralysis where we're just kind of spinning our wheels and just thinking about things that like, as, as long as we're making progress and doing things, then allowing the designs process to take the time it requires. That's goodness. That's good stuff. It results in better outcomes.
1: And I I like that. Allowing the process to take the time it needs because I, um, in one way or another, I've often said it's like, listen, you're going to kind of pay the price of this (laughs) now, or you're going to pay later.
0: That old uh, analogy or or that old saying of, you know, if you think an expert's expensive, try working with a novice. (laughs) Yeah.
1: If you, if you don't take the time, I remember a conversation was like, "Oh, well, we we really don't have sort of time to like to really like do this work you're talking about around around the problem we're trying to solve, the problem space. We really need to just get in there and do this and that." And it's like, "Okay, well, I understand what you're saying. How much time and resources do you have to do all of this over again?" And they said, "What?" It's like, "No, no, no. I I just want to make sure that if we're taking this approach that you can reinvest all of this to like do all of this work again in case we get the problem wrong because then we can just sort of jump in and guess because you have like this huge stack of resources to burn. And usually they're like, oh, no, but that, no, no, we don't. We don't have extra money. Uh, we don't have extra time. So, yeah, maybe we, we should spend a little time increasing the chances that we're solving problems that are worth solving.
0: Yeah, it's like it's always a tilt sign for me when someone comes in and they're just they like, they've got it all figured out and they just want a price. <laughs> it's like, hey, I'm not selling cars here, you know. It's like I can't just say this is a, this is what's going to be and that you know it's always uh, how much is it? And I think that mentality of you know innovation in a bottle on the shelf is something that we give the allure that that's what's happening, but it takes a lot of care and a lot of time to, you know, design and extract out where the, there is.
1: Well, I've, I've learned to be very clear around the expectations of what's possible within the boundaries of the work, because there is this, I think we're, we're past the moment a little bit, but there was this moment, maybe five, five years ago when it was the design as magic, like oh it's it's magic it's it's the silicon valley juice and drink it you will sprout innovation <laughs> um you will sprout market cap like it's amazing like oh my gosh an ipo just fell out of my body uh no it's it doesn't work that way and there there's some people who were like heard that went out and bought some it didn't work like oh this doesn't work and like, eh, yeah it's like you probably said, I will pay X. And someone said, I will take X. And then you were surprised you didn't get the results as opposed to someone who says, well, what problem are you trying to solve? <laughs> what are you hoping to accomplish? What are you looking to invest over time in doing this work well and, and building the skills of your team to do this well? Because ideally um, after working with me for a while, people no longer need me. I, I hate to like, want to do that to myself, but if I'm Doing my work well, eventually the team's like, oh no, we've we've got this. We can build on our own, or the it's it's been built into the organization. Sometimes people just like want me to sort of come and 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 do, but that's uh,
0: those are the things that I get happy about. Like,
1: oh, you want me to build something that will last longer than I'm there? I, I like that.
0: <laughs> yeah, there's legacy, right? We're making a difference in the world.
1: Yeah, and it's also seeing what good design can do once it takes root in a in a culture. Mm. It's not, once again, going to be somehow magical, but I I would say it will be better (laughs) and better varies um, from place to place. But I I like to to see that or even just to see people taking away little things. Uh, One of the things that I do with all of my engagements is I create a very detailed facilitation guide and I have it all the way down to one minute increments for, for different things and i i showed one of the like someone i work with one of these like are you are you crazy like like, like people will be late for this and this will run long and that will run. I, I know but now that i've thought through it at this level i know that when something goes wrong here i know where to adjust and how to adjust and so once you have that problem to solved in the outcomes then you can say hmm well these people are trying to get to know each other so a 5 minute break here isn't really going to work, uh, they kind of need 10 minutes. And how can we make sure the mingling happens? Uh, How can we make sure that um, people are in the relationship building phase as opposed to relationship deepening? So how do we build that into the breaks or if there's a lunch or whatever the moments are? And that requires getting really granular on paper so that during the event, uh, you can roll with the opportunities, whether it's a a tech fail or a, um, sort of a moment that is better than you expected. You uh, know, I don't want to interrupt this because this is the, the thing that we wanted to happen at 4 PM is now happening at 11. So I'm not going to get an, in the way of it. I'll just have to redesign and it gives you something to, something to tweak, something to, to
0: adapt. Yeah. And I love this, you know, mantra from, I think it comes from complexity informed thinking. And, um, it's definitely, definitely heard in the liberating structures community, but, uh, what happens was meant to happen. And it's very much, um, akin to what I heard you say earlier around embracing the uniquely possible. Mm-hmm. So going back to this concept of participant energy and taking into consideration all the fatigue we're all experiencing. And, you know, also, you know, someone could have had a crisis, even though we've done some upfront Research and exploration into where the team's at and the dynamics when we walk into the room, things could be quite different. So I'm curious to hear what you've done in scenarios like that, or or what you do to to prepare for things and, and be ready for the unexpected. Well,
1: I I leave a cushion in every event of a certain amount of time, knowing that sometimes things like different things will run over. I design every break. So if I have a five minute break on the schedule and I tell everyone like, Hey, it's time for a five minute break. I have 10 minutes built into the schedule Mm -hmm. (laughs) because five minute breaks always take 10 minutes. And those are some of the mechanics on the, how I'm connecting with people. I'm assuming, and especially sort of now as we're recording in the summer of COVID that people are coming into the event fragile and burned out. And so one of the things that I I try to stop and do is give people a chance to check in and talk. I'm assuming that like, hey, your social interactions are kind of not happening the way they used to. (laughs) Your coping mechanisms have all been broken and reshuffled. So it's uh, helping people have just very human conversations and uh, easing into the work. And I also find uh, taking more breaks. Not expecting people to sustain the intensity as long. Uh when I'm in the room with people, it's very easy to read the energy. And I find a lot of the work is me sort of pushing energy into the room. And you can do that to an extent. If you're like, well, what do you mean pushing energy? Is there is this some sort of like mystical, it's like reiki thing? What are you what are you doing? Uh well, it's making that eye contact giving people the big smile and and getting the big smile back and doing that with lots of people moving around in the space, giving people uh different places to focus. And and when I'm doing that virtually, it's a lot of time sort of <laughs> scanning the faces on the screens, but recognizing when like, oh, you know, we need to do sort of an impromptu small group thing. And mixing up the types of interaction, the types of things people are seeing on the screen. So it's not just like, oh, you're seeing other faces. Like sometimes there's going to be you know, like the images, diagrams, but also using um, whatever, if you have any kind of whiteboarding or, or drawing overlay in the software that you're using. Uh, taking you a moment to mark things up. One of the things I do in small groups is actually get giant sheets of paper and draw with each other, and that pulls people in. Uh, you can do the same thing virtually. you know those are a couple of ways i I think about just the the energy in the room and keeping it going and also you have to recognize that there will, there may come a point where, where people are just done mm. um, and it, and it may come before you want it to, but there's nothing you can do about that. The thing I do structurally is I try to put the sort of the high intensity generative things uh, earlier in the schedule and the playing with making sense with uh, tweaking of things that are sort of already out there later in the day. So that, um, it's kind of organizing and making sense of and playing with so that you're not being called upon just like to do the mentally intense things or the, the, the things that are going to rely on a lot of your you know, interpersonal skills around negotiation and figuring things out late in the day that tends to be is like, oh, if people are going to run out of steam, you're kinda you start to see it in in the outputs late in the day. So I try to push some of that earlier in the day so that by the time we are getting toward the end of things, you're like, okay, these are lighter lift activities and exchanges.
0: Even during break times, I like to remind people to turn off their video and step away just so that remind them not to go just jump in the email or whatever, because it'll only contribute to the fatigue later. I've had a sort of working from home career. Um,
1: so the adjustment wasn't quite as brutal for me. I've done my share of time in the office, but I was just used to sort of having my studio in the house and, <laughs> and doing everything that I needed to do with the short commute and uh, managing the time and interaction and getting my people time in and and having the energy flow. And when you're having to learn those things and adjust those things, especially if it doesn't suit your personality. That's when it can be difficult. And in, in meetings, it's recognizing that you might have some people are very comfortable with the screen and the environment and how the technology flows. And other people are maybe just straining against it because they're desperate to like be within touching distance of another human being and, you know, get that. Um, high-fidelity interaction with micro-expressions and scents and, and all sorts of things.
0: Yeah, the dynamics completely shifted, you know. And in the in-person realm, you could have folks that are quiet and don't ask a lot of questions. Those same folks might ask a lot of questions when they're virtual because just that layer of glass and, you know, many, many miles of air <laughs> is separation enough to where they feel more comfortable speaking up. And other folks, you know, like you say, are debilitated because they don't have all those signals they're used to having i think it's a great reminder that facilitators we just have to we have to listen and we have to bring in as much data as we can from the signals we have and you you mentioned reading the room i'm curious which signals that you use to read that digital room because that can be problematic well in
1: some ways they're the they're the same signals i'm looking for for example, give a set of instructions. Uh, I'm looking for uh, the the brows that are suddenly furrowed, and you know, like usually when it, people are sort of squinching their eyebrows together, that's their way of saying those instructions were unclear to me. Um, but people are reluctant to say that; they'll sort of dive into it, thinking that they're the only one who didn't understand, and probably not. It's probably that your instructions were unclear, and you need to try that again. And another thing is just actually checking in with people. <laughs> The, the underutilized chat function, for example, in, in zoom, there's so much that you can do with that because when you're in, in a sort of face-to-face environment, you have kind of one channel, uh, in terms of there's like, yeah, there are sort of visual cues and all that, but let's just say that there's like, like, okay, like you're going to say something or make a gesture in some way. But if we're actually going to talk, it's going to be voices. Whereas in zoom, you have that, you have the voice. You have the the chat feed. Sometimes there's another back channel if, if everyone is, say, in Slack. And so you have all of these multiple channels. And that's a different kind of conversation because now you can have people dropping in web links as someone is presenting, asking questions that can be picked up later. And so you have these multiple threads going on. And if you're looking for like, oh, we want this to be just like our in-person meetings, that's really distracting. Like, well, that's a huge opportunity for people to just drop in questions as they think of them. And you like, come back and, and weave them in. Uh, you have if, if one person is presenting, you have someone else on the team, like keep an eye on the chat. So there are, I think, huge opportunities presented by that. Uh, the different channels. Uh, so that the, the reading, the room becomes kind of an an interactive participatory process. Instead of one person reading in the face-to-face contacts, you have um, sort of multiple people nurturing the conversation uh, via those multiple channels.
0: Yeah. And, and you know, those things become elements you can design for because I think in real life, we've spent years and years to where it's in a lot of ways, just second nature. So we don't consider it much. Like when we just walk into a room because um, we can rely on our innate skills at relating, and sure, as facilitators we sharpen them, but we kind of have matured to a point. I feel that it's not always a consideration. But in the digital space, you know, thinking of how many co-facilitators do I want? Do I want someone on Slack, kind of, or or Zoom chats watching that stuff? So to me, it's really become a design consideration before we even enter in, into the the meeting itself.
1: And we're still figuring out the the opportunities. I like to to say like okay well before I sort add other tools, add other add other functionality, what are the ways we can sort of tweak what we have, twist what we have uh, so that everyone's like oh yeah there's these simple tools. Sometimes it's as simple as like okay, get a piece of paper and a pen and everyone turn off your <laughs> turn off your cameras and it's like sketch out how you think this holds together for a few minutes and then we'll have the conversation, um, so that you're even having someone not, they're not stepping away from the meeting, but they're step away from like, I just have my keyboard. You're like, Oh, I get to draw for a minute. And it's the using those simple opportunities to, uh, make the exchange extremely rich the same way it would be if everyone was in the room. And there have been a couple of instances where I was happy that everyone was online, because I I knew that there are interactions we wouldn't have been able to have if everyone was face-to-face. So like, for example, having 20 people have one-on-one conversations um, and doing several rounds of those after you've done that. And everyone's had a chance to chat for a few minutes with three different people in the room. Now you're set up differently as a group for what happens later, as opposed to if you were Sort of face-to-face in a room, doing that, and like having ten conversations all going on in a conference room, it's not. It's just like, oh, you you can't really like you're having trouble hearing, and you're like, there's like overhearing, and you can't just focus on one person. There's all this distraction, so people are able to connect that way really fast, really deep, which is nice. So it's it's finding those things that are the opportunities presented by the the challenge of leading and collaborating as we sort of adapt to our (laughs) our world as it changes
0: yeah to use your words uh, we're embracing what's uniquely possible with these new tools yeah Excellent. Well, I I think that might be a great spot to stop here on today's show. But before we go, I think listeners will be really curious how to find you, how to connect with you. You're doing some great work, and I know some people are going to want to know how to reach out.
1: Oh, thanks. Well, I'm I'm easy to find at FluidHive.com. Uh, if you search my last name, you will get a university, but DeWan Stanford, there aren't many of them. So uh, that's, that's another easier way to find me. Uh, LinkedIn and Twitter are good places to look. You can also learn more about the learning design work that I'm involved with at Georgetown in the master's in learning design and technology at Georgetown university. And uh, you can also check me out on the design thinking one-on-one podcast where I am hosting that show.
0: Excellent. Yeah, definitely check it out. And Duan, it's been a pleasure chatting with you today. I hope we stay in touch and continue the journey together. Oh, well, thank you for having me. This has been a ball. Thanks for joining me for another episode of Control the Room. Don't forget to subscribe to receive updates when new episodes are released. And if you want more, head over to our blog where I post weekly articles and resources about working better together. VoltageControl.com